0: Do you ever think about the age in which you have lived your life and what has happened during that period of time? I know I sometimes do. I think about the advancements in the space program, the changes in our society, the advancement of civil rights, the information highway. Or have you ever been fascinated by a biography of someone else's life and the time in which they lived? Consider the following life. It's somewhere between A.D. 100 and A.D. 70. A very old man, a Palestinian Jew, living in the larger Greco-Roman world in Ephesus, reflects on the marvelous time that he had lived through. Many of his family and friends had passed away. His brother James was gone. Peter, the leading apostle to the Gentiles, was dead. Thomas, Andrew, Philip, Nathaniel, all gone as well. And only one apostle remained. And during his lifetime, he has seen the Son of God become the Son of Man. And this man had been incarnated at Bethlehem. He had been baptized in the Jordan, tempted and proven sinless in the wilderness. He had healed the sick, cleansed the leper, and raised the dead. He had made the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the dumb to speak, and the lame to walk. He turned water into wine, he walked on waves, and he fed hungry multitudes with handfuls of bread. He had been crucified, buried, and ascended into heaven, promising his cousin and his very best friend, the old man John, that he was coming back. And all these truths about the Lord lingered in the old man John's heart, as with no other person on earth. John was there when the new Christian church had been born in a crowded upper room in Jerusalem just ten days after the bodily ascension of Jesus into heaven. The Holy Spirit came and the disciples had been baptized into one body, a mystical body, the body of Christ. And now, wouldn't that have been an interesting time to live in? Would you agree? John was the last remaining charter member of the church. He had known all the apostles, all the disciples, and he had seen the church grow and spread, preaching into all the world. And all the books of the New Testament were written and in circulation with the exception of several epistles and his own book, which the Holy Spirit was prompting him to write. We know Matthew had written his book primarily for the Jews and Mark had written for the Romans. Luke's book targeted the Greeks. But the Holy Spirit had convicted John that there needed to be a book written for the church, which at the time was confronted with many heresies and false teachings such as Gnosticism and Stoicism, or in our age, new age. So John wrote his book out of personal experience, a biography of sorts, and out of his own memory so his leaders would not only come to saving faith in Jesus, but also so they would grow rich and well-informed in the faith. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God who was sent by God the Father to reveal the only true God and to provide redemption for humanity. As Ryan told us last week, John leaves out many details of Jesus' life and death, and he refers only to a few special miracles as messianic signs performed by Jesus. A couple of weeks ago, in the beginning verses of the 6th chapter of John, we heard about the feeding of the 5,000 and the discourse of Jesus being the bread of life. This and the other stories of John's gospel reflect a literary motif where you see misunderstood statements. Jesus making a pronouncement, and then a bystander expresses a literal understanding of Jesus' words. And then Jesus explains the true spiritual meaning of the statement. Communication can be a difficult thing, wouldn't you say? We all see the world through different lenses, and these lenses have an effect on how we think and how we hear. It's so easy to be misunderstood. Just recently, I heard a story about a man at work at his busy stock brokerage firm. John Hunt, a broker, knows that it's hard to find time for small talk, and so he was caught off guard when a co-worker leaned over to him and asked, What's up, John? Welcoming a brief break, John told him about his hectic weekend and the trouble he was having with his car. The co-worker seemed a little distracted, however. After their conversation ended, John saw him lean over to another colleague. Hey, Robert, he said, what's the tip ticker symbol for Upjohn Pharmaceuticals. You didn't get it. That's okay. (laughs) (laughs) So as Jesus is revealing himself in the giving of signs in the sixth chapter with the feeding of the 5,000, his walking on water witnessed by his disciples, and then the verses heard last week in this, in his preaching, he claims that he's the real deal, the bread of life, which came down from heaven. And then in verse 42, they start questioning him. So why do you think the Jews objected to the Lord? Well, there were two reasons. He was claiming to be the bread which came down from heaven. That is, he was claiming to be God himself. And his claims were greater than those of Moses. He pointed to his death as a way of life. This was heady stuff. But could the Jews have been biased? Could they have been prejudiced? Maybe a little bit whiny has been their pattern in the Old Testament Yet Jesus was a a local yokel. They knew his mom and dad. He went to Hudson High, or maybe it was the academy, I can't remember. But they, they watched him grow up. And how could these things that he was saying be true? They couldn't figure things out. And it was not only driving them crazy, but it was making them angry. And then Jesus continues preaching in verse 44 to 46. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. No one is able to come to me. To be able, the Greek word dynamai, this implies that no human being in the world on his own has the moral or spiritual ability to come to Christ unless God the Father draws them. That is, gives them the desire and the inclination to come and the ability to place their trust in Christ alone. Coming to Christ from the human side requires an action of our human will, and from God's side, the act of divine will. The drawing power is God's love, which he puts forth, but he will never run roughshod over anyone's will. The Father draws all people into the sphere of his love, though all do not respond. The idea of being drawn or wooed is a very sweet one, don't you think? God literally takes possession of us, you could say. He brings us near from our otherwise faraway place. And he does this despite our resistance. Maybe you are being drawn right now here in this service. Maybe you can remember the time when you were so drawn to the Lord, so taken over by his spirit that there was nowhere to run but into his arms. Maybe the words from this hymn describe your experience. I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew. He moved my soul to seek Him, seeking me. It was not that I found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of Thee. But it is by grace alone that we are saved, and it is grace that opens our eyes to see our sin and our need of the living God who is made known to the world in Jesus, the one who will never leave you or forsake you. And when we drink from the healing, life-giving stream, we can then bear witness to the abundance Christ brings to our heart and the lives of believers. We can speak the truth about our salvation to the world of relativistic naivety and shallow interfaith hypocrisy. Without the church, brothers and sisters, there is no witness to the word made flesh. Our friend John knew this, which is why he wanted to build up the church with the writing of his gospel. The New Testament came from, grew out of, and is, state, is sustained by the church. And without the church's preservation of the scripture, there is no means of a witness to the saving and joyous gospel. Jesus goes on to try to explain to the Jews that it is only by the Father, drawing them and working and the working of faith in their hearts that they can believe in Jesus and be saved from their sins. The fact that there is nothing that they can do in their own power had to rub these independent, self-reliant people the wrong way, wouldn't you think? They were so concerned with the literal interpretation of the law, the laws of the Old Testament, that they became set in their ways. And they were comfortable in their status quo. And that's human nature, isn't it? They wanted the bread like their forefathers had received in the wilderness, not the bread that Jesus came to bring, which would give them eternal life. The Jews' pride kept them from believing in Jesus, and pride keeps people from believing today, doesn't it? The concluding passage in verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Here Jesus' statement intermingles physical and spiritual truth. Not literal bread, but living bread, in that those who believe in him have their spiritual hunger satisfied. His flesh is given by his sacramental death on the cross. And isn't it true that we have insatiable appetites? The human desire to hoard after more and more to fulfill deep needs and desires permeates our culture today, doesn't it? A vast supermarket of desires. What about things like obesity, drug addiction, sex addiction, alcoholism, cosmetic surgery, superstar idols, even gangs and violence and theft, passions running in the wrong direction. Did you ever hear the story about a burglar who was arrested and and appeared before a judge? The judge found him guilty, and he sentenced the burglar. He sentenced the burglar, um, and he he asked the burglar if he had anything to say in his defense, and the burglar said, well, you know how it is, Your Honor. The more a man has, the more a man wants. And the judge replied, Is that so? Well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to sentence you to 15 years in jail. How many more would you like? (laughs) We are hungry, aren't we? We We're hungry for food that only Jesus has. And after Jesus' claims that he was the bread of life, he also stated that the bread he gives is his own flesh, which he gives for the life of the world. And this is the first time that he explicitly refers to his sacrificial death. Unlike the forefathers of the Jews who ate manna from heaven in the wilderness and then died, those of us who eat Jesus' spiritual bread and drink his living water and believe him by faith have a way to conquer our own sin as well as the promise of eternal life with the Father. Now, that is good news. And if that were not enough, When we take part part in breaking of the bread, during the Eucharist, we join with Jesus, with the saints and each other in the fellowship with God. Isn't that about as good as it gets? John thought so. That's right, he wrote his book. Maybe you'll decide to read it again, or for the first time. And hear the good news. Recognize the drawing of God in your life and meet him again. You shall have no other gods before the Lord Almighty. Have him, know him, love him with all your mind, soul, heart, and strength. Let him into your innermost being so there will be no doubt who you follow and who you want to be like. And keep feeding on him so you know his words, his instruction, and his love for each and every one of us. You'll make the old man John proud for doing so. Amen.